Welcome everyone to episode 98, Parkinson's Cell Therapy. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Thanks so much for tuning in. How are you doing over there, Dalen? I'm hanging in there. I'm actually hanging in pretty solid. I'm in beautiful Kenny Bunkport doing my main thing. So I'm happy. I'm on vacation. I get these two weeks a year. I'm just wiling out. Although I must say I'm not complaining, but it's like 68 degrees. That's kind of cold. For It's chilly. <laughs> Go out to the beach. Take your sweater. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, my kids are like under four or five uh, towels on the beach. And apparently main people, that's just de rigueur. They're out there like in sweaters. They're like, it's a beautiful day. Yeah. That's what we're doing. The main thing in the frigid climb of Kenny Bunk. How about you, Keith? Yeah, How's well, life? I am I've been living in the hotness of Portland, Oregon. We have had yeah. a hot summer and it's been hundreds, nineties, nice what? warm days. Yeah. What? Dry as a bone since the beginning of January. If we want to find cool temperatures, we have to go to the coast as well. <laughs> <laughs> well come on over. Yeah, but this is the land of many rivers and waterfalls. So there's plenty of beach or at least waterfront access where if you want to dip your toes in and cool down it's fantastic and i found a few swimming holes this summer that have made me very happy that's well so that's good for you yeah. i'm looking for a sauna personally. <laughs> yeah i hope you Why find one <laughs> let's make it a little hot with some stem cell science Yes, yes. Ready? All right, let's get down to it. Make sure everyone out there, you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com, where you can not only subscribe to our newsletter, but you will also find all of our past episodes and other great resources. And of course, follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to iTunes and Stitcher so new episodes automatically will download to your phone. So last week, or last episode, we spoke with Mark Tomashima from Sloan Kettering, and he told us about his efforts to translate stem cell technology into therapies for Parkinson's disease. And today, Dalen, you know what? We're going to follow up on that discussion with our guest, Dustin Wakeman. Hmm. But first, you ready to round it up? I'm ready. I love follow-ups. I got to give my hats off to the producers here who are putting these shows together in a way that makes sense. Good job, guys. <laughs> we're going to get to this roundup in just a sec. But before that, we're excited to remind listeners about Neural Cell News. This is one of Connexon's most popular newsletters. Neural Cell News covers the latest research every week, including neural development, neurodegeneration, neural signaling, and synaptic plasticity for all you people into that side of thing. I'm into that it, kind of thing. Yeah, you're yeah. so plastic. I love it about <laughs> your plasticity is so good. Also, in addition, research into the diagnosis, progression, cellular characteristics, and treatment of brain diseases such as Parkinson's, MS, Alzheimer's, ALS, and various brain cancers, as well as brain damage is also covered. Plus, industry news, events, and jobs in the neuroscience field are included every week. So subscribe for free at www.neuralcellnews.com. Guys, we may be maybe getting some uh, new listeners because of the neural theme here. I hope you guys will check out this newsletter. Get to the link. It's real good. Now, without further ado, Kiki, give us the science. I am. I will. And the first story today is a big one. You may have heard about research out of OHSU, the Oregon Health and Science University here 
my town of Portland, Oregon, from the lab of Shukrat Metalipov and his colleagues in California, Korea, and China in gene editing human embryos with CRISPR-Cas9 to correct a gene defect that leads to heart failure. Yeah, this is a big, big story. We got to chat about this. I'm not letting you have this all to yourself, Kiki. <laughs> this is nuts. A powerhouse of big-time researchers, all the big names whom we've had on the show, some of their uh, representatives at least, and uh, they came together this time to really make a seminal contribution. This is something we're going to look back on 100 years from now and say this was the first time. So remember it, guys, for the trivia. Kiki, please elaborate on the details. Yeah, so this is not the first time that human embryos have been edited, but this is the first time that they have been edited in the United States. And additionally, it's the first time that there seems to be success to the methodology. So Chinese researchers have previously edited embryos using CRISPR-Cas9, but ran into problems with their efficiency. With They had a lot of off-target effects, which basically means that they were editing in places they shouldn't be editing in the genome, which had negative effects on the embryos. You don't want to put genes in wrong places because that just mucks up the works, doesn't it? In their past methods, they had added the CRISPR-Cas9 at a stage of division that was past the initial fertilization of the egg with the sperm. According to this new paper in the August 2nd issue of Nature, these researchers have now, here in the United States, added the CRISPR-Cas9 at the same time that they have basically fertilized the egg with the sperm. So at the moment of fertilization, CRISPR-Cas9 is entering the egg cell as well. And this seems to be the key to getting rid of many of those off-target effects. Just as a note of practicality, the idea that they're bringing it in with the sperm, there's like a huge process, uh, not huge, it's, it's very prevalent, called ICSI, intracytoplasmic sperm injection, that accounts for about half of all infertility IVF cases, male factor infertility, where they're injecting the sperm in there in order to fertilize the egg. So the idea that you can co-inject mm -hmm. some CRISPR and some other guide RNAs and the components to maybe fix this disease, it's, it seems like it's really right there. You know, we're right on the precipice of doing it because we're already using a lot of the tools and techniques to introduce the sperm. So it seems like maybe this is something that's coming into the realm of practicality sooner than anybody thought. And I think that's yeah. why this is such a major watershed. But that's not it, Kiki's. There's more, right? There is more. So uh, previous work had suggested that this mutation would probably be repaired in, I don't know, 20 to 30 percent of the cells of the embryos. But in fact, the mutation was fixed in about 72 percent of the embryos. So this is unprecedented as well, the success of the editing. However, they were editing a single mutation. This isn't a multi-mutation trait that they're looking at. This is just a single mutation. And so we don't really know how this will work with respect to other mutations that yeah. affect other traits. Yeah, that's for sure. And I think one of the major insights in terms of limitations, what I thought was actually a boon, and it was one of those things where, you know, if you pay close attention and you do the work, nature will teach you something. In this case, a lot of times they weren't getting the rescue of the gene from the template 
that they were putting in there. You know, when you're trying to correct a gene, you got to put in a copy of the good gene, and then the CRISPR will go and use the endogenous recombination machinery to repair based on your template. But they found that they couldn't get it to take up the template. Instead, it always took the maternal copy of the gene. So this is kind of two things that are notable about this. For the better, that shows that using the template that's already there can be a very efficient process, as you alluded to, 72% repair at the one cell stage. But the catch there is, if you don't have a healthy copy from the maternal genome, so any eggs that carry the genetic disease may not be as practical for doing this kind of gene repair. But anything that's arriving in the sperm, it seems like you'll be able to repair genes where the template can be even more complex. And maybe as you're trying, kind of hinting at, if it is only in the sperm, I feel like you may be able to do a multigenic rescue because the template of the entire maternal genome is there to work from. So I'm optimistic that we may be able to move towards these multigenic diseases just as long as it's the male that's deficient. And let's be honest, Kiki, isn't that always the case? <laughs> I'm not going to put it on the males. No. <laughs> this particular paper, it is, as you said, it's a seminal paper, and it is really upping the timeline, potentially, for the use of this kind of technique in IVF facilities. I mean, how soon, Dalen, you work with IVF? This isn't ready to go yet, but based on this study, how long do you think it's going to be before some facility, some treatment center is like, oh, we can do this. We'll CRISPR-Cas9 it. Yeah. And they just start using it. That's scary to me because I'm not worried about my facility. I'm worried about <laughs> my little pirate type places. You know, we could all do it right now. And that's maybe what's a little scary because I'll say this, I, I've met and spoken with Shukret. He's a very, very exacting and diligent, focused scientist, as is his group and all the groups he was working with. The reason why they were able to get that success is because they vetted these CRISPR guide RNAs to make sure that there were no off-target effects in cell lines before they put them into embryos. My yeah. fear is that people are going to be buying their CRISPR constructs from Genocopia and saying, and start selling cures to, you know, paternal effect disease. I think that's what, what scares me is that it's going to be a black eye if we start having some kind of cowboy IVF going on. Yeah. So hopefully this study hastens a conversation about regulation of, uh, of these kinds of gene editing techniques in in vitro fertilization facilities or even just in general. This conversation for human gene editing has started. The fact that they got to do it here in the United States, that they went through institutional review, that it was approved. I mean, one of the key aspects to the way this research or the, the ability of this research to be completed is the fact that they used private money. They did not use federal funds for this research because that is not allowed by regulations. So they had to pinch and save and shake the trees of the donors to be able to try to find the grant funding to do this work and bring together a, a, a multinational team to get it done. And they did. And they, they did. got it done. And they did it carefully, Kiki. I can't yeah. emphasize that enough. I have a lot of respect for these guys. We got to get uh, Dr. Metalipov on here if we can. Shukret, yes. this is my appeal to you. Come on, speak to the world. Speak to the world. And anyone who hasn't heard of, of this research previously, I'll let you know that, yes, they edited embryos. The embryos were not allowed to divide past the blastocyst stage. They were just very short-lived cellular organisms. 
Good point, Kiki. You yes. got to get that in. Got to get that in. Yes, they're not creating, not creating little mutant babies. Well, I guess not mutant because they were edited to not be mutant. Designer babies designed Designer. to be healthy. Although, yeah. like we said, carefully, they're not pushing the envelope. They're forcing the discussion and that's for good. Absolutely. Moving on to another story of mutants. This is of, of mice and mutants. <laughs> uh, research published in eNeuro on July 31st suggests that social environment influences behavior in complex and important ways. We know that environment and genes combine to affect the organism, but this particular study was unexpected. Researchers were looking at littermates of mice that carry an autism-related mutation. And so these littermates don't have the mutation themselves, but they started to have behaviors similar to their autistic-like littermates. Basically, they planned to study the social behavior of mice that carried a mutation found in people with autism. They stumbled into this, says the co-author Stefan Baudouin. He's a neurobiologist at Cardiff University in Wales. And they studied groups of mice that had been genetically modified to lack neurolignin-3. And this is a gene that gets mutated. This is involved in autism. We don't exactly know how, but it's involved. And so without the gene, the mice don't create neurolignin-3, and they don't have this protein in their brains. It's a protein to help cells communicate with each other. And so those that don't have neurolignin, the nerve cells don't communicate as well. And then there are behavioral oddities that come as a result. So they don't, they're not social. They don't have interest in sniffing other mice. Right? You know, little mice. They go around sniffing each other because there are a lot of cues. Weirdos. Non-sniffers? Ooh, creeps. (laughs) What? You don't sniff your friends? Where have you been? What have you been doing? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The researchers noticed that the non-mutated control mice who were in the cages, in the same cages as the mutants, also had strange behaviors. There were not the same kind of social hierarchies. So in mixed groups, there really wasn't a hierarchy at all. There were no aggressive and vocal males at the top of the hierarchy kind of controlling everything. It was just flat. Mm. And they found that the testosterone levels in mutants and non-mutants were comparable to females in the groups. And the social curiosity of the animals were lacking as well. Mice are usually interested in smells of others. They'll smell cotton swabs that have been swiped across bedding of unfamiliar mice. But uh, given a, a choice of strange mice cotton swabs or banana-scented cotton swabs, they didn't really have a preference for either one. Weird. Yeah, they added neurolignin-3 back into parts of the mutant mouse's brains. The mutant's behavior normalized. And that shifted the behavior of all the mice. Mm. And so the abnormal behavior of the mutants, of these autistic-like mice, determined the behavior of the non-mutants. So there's a give and take between all of the animals in the social group and behavior of all of them. And also, what interestingly, the testosterone levels of all of them were reliant or determined by that social group dynamic. Oh. Yeah. I don't know where to start with this. I'm like impressed. I can't understand the potential mechanism. My takeaway is that sniffing is like talking for humans. That's what mice do. 
when they interact, they sniff. And I should have known that already. And any mouse that doesn't sniff is a creep. <laughs> so the, the question is, you know, is it testosterone that determines behavior or is it behavior that determines testosterone? So is it the behaviors of other animals that leads to stress and to potential aggression or the need to feel like they need to protect their turf mm. and thus increases in testosterone that lead to more aggressive behaviors that lead to a social hierarchy developing? This interplay is very interesting and it really blurs the line between that behavior and physiology and how things are controlled for group dynamics. It makes you wonder how maybe autistic spectrum, people on the, on the autistic spectrum can affect groups in human culture. I mean, right. I guess it's, it's a question of the numbers with the mice. I got to look at this study. Is it just one mouse that's normal and the, the, all the other ones are mutated and that one gets weird or is it's like mixed groups? Mixed I mean, groups. Yeah. Wow, that's really fascinating. So it's not just like the one guy is surrounded by these autistic mice and therefore he becomes strange. Right. It's just one, you take one piece of the puzzle out and everybody kind of falls, falls apart. Wow, that's mm -hmm. interesting. Pretty interesting stuff. And oh, hey, here's some great news. Nearly 5% of U.S. adults misused prescription opioids in 2015. Good job, <laughs> oh, everyone. Hey, America, you did it. <laughs> hey. National Survey on Drug Use and Health reporting on a survey of more than 50,000 people. The researchers used the data to estimate that 91.8 million adults used prescription opioids in 2015. That's 37.8% of American adults. <laughs> Nearly 40% of people in the United States, of adults in the United States, used prescription opioids. 5% nearly misused them, right? I just don't believe you on the first part of that. Right. I mean, have you used any opioids? I haven't. Used I haven't. No. <laughs> nope. Tell the truth, Kiki. No, I use my, I got my ibuprofen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> me know? too. I just said, where's all these opioids? Maybe it's like all different segments of the population. Wow. 40% almost. Yeah. And 1.9 million people actually uh, reported using opioid dependence or abuse. Mm. So there's a subset of that 5% that are actually dependent and abusing the, the drugs. This is reported in the Annals of Internal Medicine from August 1st. And among those reporting the misuse, nearly 60% use the painkillers without a prescription. They got them from somewhere. 22% took a bigger dose than was prescribed. 15% used them more frequently than directed. And 13% used them for longer than directed. And the most common reason for this misuse was relieving pain. For 66% of people reporting misuse and nearly 49% of those with dependence or abuse. Does that mean the other third of people are like, yeah, I use it to get high? I mean, who is it? Probably. I, or, I, I, I don't know. I just wasn't paying attention. <laughs> yeah, I use it because <laughs> I thought it was for headaches. Uh. This is a, a small part of the ongoing conversation related to the nation's opioid epidemic, for which many local areas are actually starting to sue pharmaceutical companies. The county in which I live, Multnomah County, actually recently just opened a lawsuit against pharmaceutical companies for their role in this developing opioid epidemic. And some other news has come out as well that one in 12 doctors 
was swayed by pharmaceutical perks in their prescribing habits. And one in five doctors who are prescribing opioids received some kind of perk, be it a sandwich or (laughs) something from pharmaceutical companies that market opioids. So there's a huge interplay here between the pharmaceutical companies, how they market, who they're marketing to, the doctors who are prescribing, what kind of perks the doctors are getting, are those perks specifically for prescribing, and now the people who are using them and the reasons that people are using them. Opioids are supposed to curb pain, so maybe we need to do a lot more research into how to treat chronic pain. In a way that makes more sense. I, I've been talking yeah. about this a lot. I don't know about in the show, but it really aggravates me because you see all these amorphous drug ads and you find that one of them, this one, I forget what it's called, but it's for the opioid induced constipation. I've talked mm-hmm. about that with you, right? Which yeah. is so like, oh yeah, it's normal. Like normalizing opioid induced comp- yep. constipation. Like everyone's walking around with a smile on their face. Like it's like, you know, getting a headache. I think that's that's out of hand. And now this Vivitrol thing where they're they're making a play, it's not enough that they've overprescribed and got all these people addicted to the opioids. Now they're cashing in on the like uh Suboxone or whatever, yep. all the, the anti And now we'll now we'll make money getting you off the opioids yes, as exactly. well. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's win win. It's like we got the drugs in the one hand, we got the cure in the other. You're gonna be on both for the rest of your life. It's nuts. I think there needs to be some accountability on that. You know, when we Absolutely. were kids, they didn't advertise drugs. Now they advertise drugs. All they don't even the tell time. you what they do. They need to go back. <laughs> this was a bad idea. There's that whole, you know, the, the two pages of fine print. Yes. That, you know, oh. All these things happen, you know, or there's at the end of the uh, the television or the radio advertising. Oh, my God, the fast the, talker. The fast talker. <laughs> the thing that they forget to put in there is may, may lead to dependence and abuse and job yeah. loss and family right. troubles and <laughs> oh god yes. and being beholden to pharmaceutical companies for years it's really bad it's really really bad the pharma the son that's the new bad guy it's the, my new boogeyman the pharma's got to go maybe not new it's been that way they got to go kiki i don't feel good about there's it. there's a good side to pharma and then there's the dark side to pharma and so oh. we have to we have to balance balance. Uh, we all. need to maybe to be reminded of the good. Yeah. All I'm seeing is Screlly and Vivitrol and opioid induced constipation of late. So remind me what's good. <laughs> Vaccines are good and okay. great. Yes. Okay, you win. You win. <laughs> and treatments for rare diseases are wonderful. Vaccines give you autism. Everybody knows that. No, <laughs> Shush! just stop that right now. Uh, Tell me some news. What's what's new in the stem cell world, Dalen? I'll give you some news. Well, this is going to sound like some nonsense, but this is real, girl. It was in nature. So believe it. Stem cell brain implants. Why? To make you smarter? No, to slow aging and extend life. That's what a study's showing. So what they've done is they've, they've, quote unquote, slowed the aging process by injecting stem cells into the brain. And this is, a, I think, a novel approach to combating age-related diseases. I mean, you think of age and neurodegeneration, but what we're talking about here is like just aging straight up. So these are neuron-producing stem cells, and when you inject them into the brains of mice, they put the brakes on aging, making them physically and mentally fit for months longer and ex- extending their lives by like 10 to 15%. 
a little bit of detail, the, the mechanism it's thought is that it's like aging across the body is controlled by this central focus of stem cells that are in the hypothalamus. You know, the hypothalamus is this major regulator of uh, all the kind of hormones and other stuff that's going on in your body, the communication node. But these neural cells, they steadily die off until they're almost completely gone by middle age. So now we get it. Why am I such a wreck as I approach middle age? Because my hypothalamus is burning out on me. Keeks? Yes. Hypothalamus is really, the function of it is actually, you know, it's central to keeping our body going. It's the center for autonomic control of your body's temperature, thirst, hunger, sleep, you know, all these things that are necessary to the body's function and your survival. Yep. And so if the hypothalamus is breaking down, then all those trouble. things, that's why as you get older, people get sleep issues. You don't sleep as well. If you're not sleeping yes. as well, then there are other degenerative issues that come from that. And if you're not hungry, then you're not going to be fueling your body in the way that will keep it going. So there, there are all sorts of ways this ties in. And so this study, I think, is amazing. Can we fix the hypothalamus? Yeah, but I never would have thought it had such control. But you're right. Like, it's a well-oiled machine, and this is the, the brain, right? I mean, literally and metaphorically. So when the little bits go down and the whole machine starts running, it's like, like not well. And uh, this leads <laughs> to aging, I guess. Yeah. So just to tell you about the experiment, it's neural stem cells, right? So the first thing, they show that these things disappear from the hypothalamus, which was relatively undescribed. And then the, these stem cells that they showed disappear are, are known to form these fresh brain cells in youth. And then that process slows down as you get older. So in order to test out whether they played a role in the aging, the group. So this is um, Dong Shenkai at Albert Einstein. And what his group did is they injected mice with a toxin. First, they went to see if you break the system, right? So they injected with a toxin that knocked out about 70% of these neural stem cells in the hypothalamus. Over the next few months, these eight, the mice age really more rapidly than usual, and they perform worse on all the battery tests, endurance, coordination, social behavior, ability to recognize. They weren't sniffing, probably, in the correct way, if I know mice. Right. And behaviorally, they aged faster when they were moved early in the process, and they died months earlier than the healthy animal controls. Now, next, what they did is they, they looked at the reverse. When you, when you injected uh, mice with fresh neural stem cells during aging, and of course, they lived longer than controls, as we already alluded to, by about 15%. If you were to apply this in humans, the average life expectancy of 80 years would be extended to 92. Of course, humans are much more complex, quote, says Dong Shenkai, who yeah. led the research. Than <laughs> a mouse? What? <laughs> Quote, though, however, silver lining, if the mechanism is fundamental, you might expect to see effects when an intervention is based on this technology. And, and I think that's the real point here is like when you think about fundamental mechanisms, like the hypothalamus controlling all that stuff it controls, that's like biology all the way down, you know, to vertebrates. So I think that this is a conserved mechanism, presumably. Who knows the degree to which it'll rescue aging or slow aging. More than that, just like the conservation mechanism, uh, Kai's group, they looked into the actual mechanism in these mice, looking in the mice that they were ablating the neural stem cells in and found that there was a specific cohort of microRNAs that were specific to these neural stem cells that were in fact responsible for those aging effects via the cerebrospinal fluid. So 
You know, this may be not just like stem cells in the hypothalamus, but we may actually have the actual factors, these microRNAs that target multiple RNAs and act as kind of global regulators, which makes sense because aging is a complex process. So you're going to want to have some blanket silver bullet that we can target. So that's what we're looking at. Uh, who knows if this is going to translate, but it's a, it's a new line, I think, a new approach to addressing aging in a way that's kind of global, as opposed to looking at specific organs and degenerative processes. We can fix the whole human. What do you say? Ah, whole human, whole animal science. I like it. But I think that the, the super exciting thing here is that potentially humans, if this works out, we don't have to, we wouldn't necessarily have to inject stem cells to make mm -hmm. this work. Mm -hmm. If we figure out this, uh, the miRNAs, you know, the microRNAs, if we can just use those, if you can figure yeah. out what they are targeting, what are they leading to? Is there something that can be given in a pill form? Is there something that would be very easy? You know, is there a supplement that someone could take? Resveratrol. Maybe right. there's some mechanism there. Boom. There we go. Everybody, go to your health food store. Get some homeopathics. <laughs> Homeo homeopathics. You'll live forever. <laughs> well, you know what? It's Let's get off homeopathics. The placebo effect will keep you alive forever. I'll tell you, it's not a placebo effect. And my next story, we're not talking homeopathics here. We're talking about a real cancer stem cell killer drug. All right, cancer stem cells. We have talked about those at length. The real deal with them, why they're so malignant, is they survive in spite of chemo or radiation treatment, and they're therefore associated with the recurrence or the metastasis and ultimately poor survival. Uh, when you see cancer stem cells, you, you generally get a poor prognosis. So there have been previous studies that have shown that there's this small molecule called ONC201, ONC201. It's actually in advanced cancer clinical trials right now for targeting colorectal cancer stem cells. But little is known. It's one of those things in pharma, like a lot of drugs, where it's like, yeah, it, it kills the stem cells. How does it do it? I don't know, but it works. Let's put it into advanced clinical trials. And why not? Because we don't have another answer, right? But not knowing the answer may make the activity of the drug, you know, not optimal. We may be able to figure out how it does it and do it better. So what we've found now is this ONC201 may inhibit cancer stem cell self-renewal by altering their gene expression. That's according to a new study published just this past week in PLOS One by Varun Prabhu from Oncoceutics Incorporated USA. How much do you want to bet Oncoceutics is the one that makes ONC201? Two hundred one. Yeah, yeah, probably. Good but bet. We'll put that aside for a second. Prabhu and colleagues—they conducted a gene expression analysis of the colorectal prostate cancer and glioblastoma cell lines that were treated with control versus this ONC two hundred one. They found that the ONC two hundred one altered the gene expression profile of cancer stem cell markers and signaling pathways before killing them, and that kind of gave a pharmacodynamic biomarker for responsiveness to the drug. And of course, as you would expect, these changes, the dynamic changes weren't observed in the control group. The final element is that the authors suggest that if you try kind of preload this gene expression signature on cancer stem cells, if you can prime it, then you might be able to predict whether or not these cells will respond to ONC201. So you can see via the profile if they're likely to be a good candidate for receiving this drug. 
And this is, you know, good evidence for a mechanism of how this drug works and provides further support for the ongoing clinical trials. You know, it's killing the cells we didn't know how. Now we may know a little better how, not exactly, but at least further <laughs> research could test how the gene expression in these cancer stem cells into, uh, in response to onc 201 and the RNA and protein levels in these tumor cells, how they're changed, how that can lead to their either failure to grow and metastasize or die, you know, self-destruct, apoptose, whatever it is. So the bottom line is Oncoceutics has not quite figured out how the drug works, but they got some more good evidence to push it into phase three. Way to go. Cool. Phase three will be, that, that's great. I mean, that's on its way to being a treatment. We're really yeah. getting there. But the exciting thing is that once you have things to target, once you have phenotypes, once you have characteristics of these colorectal cancer stem cells to look at, you'll know whether or not somebody has the cells that have that acquired resistance and won't even respond mm -hmm. to this right. treatment. Or And is it worth it? Or is it somebody that this is really going to work for? I think the modern era is marked in terms of medicine by like really personalizing our approach to each patient. And I, I love it. I, I think in the early days, it may make medicine more expensive or diagnostics more expensive. Yeah. But think of all the patients we treat with drugs that only hurt them and provide no benefit. And we got to move away from that, obviously. And this is the way. All right. Another thing, scourge of humankind in the modern era, first world problems. We need to figure out this diabetes. So in recent years, scientists have been using new techniques. There's a new technique every day, it seems, to try and get human stem cells to grow an unlimited number of insulin-producing beta cells. These are the cells that are lost in both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Living cells as opposed to pharma. You love pharma, Kiki. You're a real pharma <laughs> no, lover. Why are you talking about I'm this pharma? Not. <laughs> All right, maybe not, but I need an enemy here. Okay, yeah. cells. But I'm the cells. Idea, living cells as opposed to taking a drug every day for the rest of your life. Yes. If you have living cells that are self replicating and don't just die, so you need repeated transplants. Yes. This is the way you want a single transplant and be done with it. And you're solved. Right? It's a cure. It's yes. not a, a chronic treatment. It's no, a cure. It's a cure. Yeah. So that's what we're trying to. And, you know, the researchers from Denmark, they're trying to work on safer. Because as you said, you know, unlimited cells, getting them in, it's a cure, but we got to be safe, right? The, the graft can't add to the problems because that's worse than a drug potentially. But this group is making insulin producing cells safer. This is a team from Copenhagen. They've been developing a way to purify the cells, and that's the key. If you get pure beta cells without any residual kind of stem cell or progenitor cells, you can avoid the risk of them developing off-target cell types, potentially tumors, which may have like an effect on whether or not your graft is controlling your blood sugar or worse, give you a tumor. So what the group did is they found this cell surface protein, glycoprotein 2, GP2, and that was specific to pancreatic endoderm cells, so it allowed them to specifically isolate them and get pure samples of cells, which would, of course, potentially increase the effectiveness and, most of all, the safety of any implants. This is uh, Professor Henrik Sem, along with Assistant Professor Jacqueline Amory. And, of course, they've developed a company. You know, you come on the paper, make a company, throw it at the wall, see what sticks. It's called Pancryos, and this is to capitalize on the research findings of this cell, uh, this pancreatic endoderm specific marker. Uh, Mary, who's the CEO 
Uh, Pankraus said, quote, in parallel with other groups in this field, we've been working on a cell therapy for type 1 diabetes for many years. What's unique about our approach is the simplification of our protocol, which acknowledges that eventually the process will need to be scaled up for manufacturing. And that's what they're working on. By getting this cell-specific marker, they can standardize protocols for differentiation and purification to get a product that the FDA can sign off on in terms of risk and benefit. So it's it's one of those things, maybe not a lot of people, you know, you started our roundup with something that people are going to be talking about in 100 years. No one's going to be talking about this in 100 years, but I guarantee you that little incremental steps like this are what are going to get the cell-based therapies to the clinic. So good for you, Henrik Sem, and uh, your compatriot there, Jacqueline Amari. Nice work. That's a great step forward. Oh, and we are done with the yep. roundup. We have We've made taken our steps. We've taken Another our step steps. forward, three steps back. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, constantly moving forward. Science never sleeps. <laughs> I like to, though. But before we get into our interview, Stem Cell Technologies wants to let us know about a product line called Stem Diff Cerebral Organoid Kit for culturing cerebral organoids. These cutting-edge 3D mini-brains offer a more physiologically relevant model that recapitulates human brain development in vitro. I can't believe that we are at a point where there's a kit to make a, a mini-brain. Yikes. This used to be just like specialized labs that worked on these kinds of organoids, and now it's a kit. You guys, the availability of materials for your research is amazing. This kit is based on the published formulation by Madeline Lancaster and Jürgen Noblich, streamlined and optimized with easy-to-follow protocol. For more info and to see the data, please go to www.stemcell.com slash stemdiffco. There are a lot of mad scientists firing up their computer right now to go to that no. website. I'll tell you that Yes, stemcell.com slash stemdiffco. You too can follow an easy-to-follow protocol. Mini brains. <laughs> and make a mini brain. <laughs> it is time for our interview. The Stem Cell Podcast and Stem Cell Technologies are very pleased to welcome Dustin Wakeman to the Stem Cell Podcast. Dustin is Senior Research Scientist at RxGen and Adjunct Assistant Professor at Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Wakeman focuses his career on determining the long-term therapeutic value of stem cell therapy in neurodegenerative disorders. His interests include stem cell-based therapeutics, disease modeling, neural transplantation, and morphological and molecular changes in aging and neurodegenerative diseases, including Parkinson's, Huntington's, Alzheimer's, and more. Dr. Wakeman... Welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for that very nice introduction. It's wonderful to have you here. And last episode, we talked a lot about cryoprotection with Mark Tomashima and his efforts about, around using stem cells for discovering new therapies for Parkinson's disease. And so before we learn more about your group's similar efforts and goals, can you just introduce yourself generally and your work's focus to our audience? Sure. So sort of have a multi-role position now at RexGen, but related to cryopreservation and transplantation of dopamine neurons, sort of got started a decade or so ago, and we were transplanting uh, neural stem cells derived from 
fetal brain. And then that sort of progressed on. Embryonic stem cell field started really booming in California when I was in San Diego. And then, of course, the IPS field after that. Actually, it was when I got to Chicago and started working at Rush University. It's interesting you mentioned Mark Tomashima. Actually, I've worked very closely with Mark and uh, the group at Sloan Kettering with Lorenz Studer and, and Vivian Tabar on a very similar project to this. In fact, extremely overlapping. But essentially, got into transplanting different types of cells for Parkinson's disease uh, using both rodent and non-human primate models. And that sort of led to this work, this culmination of this work. I must admit, it was you know a decade plus of just new iterations of new cell types. And really, it was the pioneering work and breakthrough work of Lorenz Studer that even allowed this project to become possible because Lorenz really and his group, along with Mark, who was integral uh, to that work, really laid the foundation and the framework for understanding how to make what I would call what we say are authentic midbrain dopamine neurons. In other words, we could always make cells that kind of had these phenotypes, so they would stain for antibodies for things like tyrosine hydroxylase, which is the rate-limiting enzyme in dopamine synthesis. And that's sort of used as a surrogate marker for dopamine neurons. But Lorenz was the one that took it to the next step and really said, okay, well, we can make these TH positive or tyrosine hydroxylase positive neurons that look a lot like dopamine neurons, but yet long-term and in vivo, they don't function as they're supposed to. So they can provide short-term benefits, but long-term, they don't actually turn out to work. And of course, you have other issues with tumor genicity. He was the one that really had, it was a major paradigm shift going from what we stem cell people call neural rosettes, or these very primitive neuroectodermal cells that resemble the neural tube. And Lorenz figured out the key pivotal moments with which to intervene with specific uh, signaling molecules and morphogens and really understand the developmental biology behind it. As I'm sure many of the listeners appreciate, you know, most of the really great stem cell biologists are developmental biologists or people that understand that all we're trying to do in a dish is recapitulate human development. And so the more lessons that we can take from what's going on naturally, the better we can be at actually recreating that in the lab environment and then hopefully translating that whether or not you're doing small molecule screening or uh, disease modeling, or in this case, actually providing a cell-based therapeutic through a replacement strategy. So let's talk about that. Your angle here is, you know, we've got the developmental biologists kind of setting the stage from an academic standpoint. And then your focus is trying to bring these cells into clinical practice, into brains. What's the essential bottleneck there? I would say, you know, there's several, obviously, but one of the major hurdles uh, towards clinical translation, at least in the past couple of years, really was and will continue to be for any cell-based therapeutic. It doesn't matter if it's for Parkinson's disease, which is actually a really nice disorder because you have a very specific cell type that you're losing. And so, and we actually only have to make dopamine and, and have it secreted. It doesn't actually have to be necessarily fully regulated, although what we're finding out is that it is. But one of the major hurdles, of course, is how do you generate a large batch of cells that can go through QA processes which are essential for your release, not only for your product, but for the FDA. So how do you satisfy the FDA, which is really a safety organization, and they do a really great job of, of doing that, but how do you actually create a large enough test article, in this case, I'm going to speak more generally, a cell-based product or a test article, you can apply this to a drug of any kind or any biologic, and how do you actually produce that and make that in a meaningful manner that you're going to reach the largest number of patients, so you've got the patient aspect, and then you've got from commercial aspect, 
the bottom line is, you know, to, in order to get to enough patients, you need to have some sort of way to commercialize that and to and legitimately make money and have a business around that. And so I still am personally most interested in the former in generating a useful therapeutic that is ultimately safe, secondarily must be efficacious. And of course, for Parkinson's disease, we have some pretty good options out there that'll give you 10 or so years of relief. We have oral dopamine, which works quite well for a while. And we also have deep brain stimulation, which works quite well for a while. So you need to do better than that. One of the major hurdles, right, is how do you actually get enough of these cells that can actually pass muster and have a large working cell bank of these to actually provide a product to a large enough number of people where it could be commercialized. And the major hurdle right there, of course, is cryopreservation of these cells. So some cell-based companies have come up with ways to generate cells fresh and then actually not freeze them or not thaw them. It's a little bit tougher when you're talking about highly specialized cells that go through a rather long, laborious differentiation process, and you can end up with different cell types in your population. How do you know that what's in there is actually what you want? And anyone that's, at least at the academic level, has worked in any type of differentiation. I'm thinking pancreatic islets, which are, if you've ever heard one of Doug Melton's talk, you can really appreciate the amount of work that's gone into developing these very rigorous long protocols. Oligodendrocytes are another neural cell type, oligodendroglial cell that are take a long time to make and you have to do a lot of different signaling steps. So cryopreservation really was a huge hurdle to overcome. So you know, I always looked at finding the right combination of growth factors and timing was a bit of a technical hurdle, right? We have such high throughput methods these days where we can take various concentrations of different molecules at different times and have high throughput phenotype screening, that was always more of a technical, eventually we'll get there. Also, cryopreservation was a bit of a technical thing too. Five years ago, 10 years ago, if you told somebody that you could freeze a mature, I don't care what kind of neuron you're talking about, but a mature neuron, whether it be from an animal or be from a a cell in a dish, they would have told you you were crazy. And I was one of those people. In fact, you know, what led to this work actually was I was at a meeting, a Society for Neuroscience, Chicago Regional meeting, and gentleman that was working for Cellular Dynamics International, Carter Cliff, Carter and I were having a conversation, and I said, I basically told him, quite frankly, that I didn't believe that this could work. And, you know, he said, call my bluff. And so we, several months down the road, we were showing first evidence that you could take a tube out of a cryopreserved tube of post-mitotic neurons out of a literally straight out of a tube, thaw them, centrifuge them twice to remove DMSO, and then immediately inject them into the brain of an animal and they would survive. And then eventually we went on to show that in this um, recent paper we had in stem cell reports, that those cells would actually continue to function and innervate. So it's been quite exciting. I must admit, at the same time, we were working, doing similar work with Mark Tomashima and Lorenz Duder and Vivian Tabar with their cells, which are By the way, the cells we were using from CDI are pretty much the exact same cell as the original versions of their cells were almost identical, and that the same IP and the same techniques were used to generate these cells commercially as were being used in the lab. So it was really a a way for other people to get access to these cells, and they're a phenomenal tool, especially if you're looking to do screening and whatnot. I highly suggest picking up some of these cells from, I guess I'm a little bit biased to CDI because I know the quality and I've worked with these people for quite a while. It's been really cool is watching this sort of the second generation, I would say, the more therapeutic versions or the clinically relevant versions that the Sloan Kettering group has been working on that, you know, Mark probably talked about, although I imagine Mark probably talked a lot about it, his new cryopause paper and cryopause technology, which is super cool. And I think 
is really going to change the way a lot of people work with stem cells, or at least pluripotent stem cell-based cells. But it's been really interesting to watch from someone that helped develop and helped sort of multiple teams simultaneously develop their clinical programs and watch now what they've done to make their fine those little fine-tuning steps in either cell production or how they're going to deliver those cells. Because again, once you start talking to the FDA, which you have to do early and often, things change. Because when you're going to go to the clinic, you know what goes into that media, every component that goes into that media has to be a totally different level, right? You need to be GMP, GLP at this point. It's a whole different ballgame when you start talking about patients. And it should be. So, so it's been really exciting. I mean, you said, you know, you didn't think that the cryopreservation could happen and then you moved on to being able to preserve these neurons, get them to work in brains. And now you're using these differentiated dopaminergic neurons that are going in vivo and working. What are the technologies? What happened in the technique to allow this development? Like what changed? Well, I can tell you what I know and what that I'm at liberty to talk about. So, proprietary techniques. Yeah. <laughs> IPs and non disclosures are important. And I got to disclose now I work for a company called RexGen, and it's now public knowledge that we did actually some of the initial non human primate work in our Parkinson's model for Cellular Dynamics International. So, I should disclose that. And while I was working on this paper, it was in collaboration with uh, CDI, and they did uh, fund some of those studies, which is fully disclosed in the paper, but I should disclose that now just to be sure. But oh, Dustin, don't worry. We're not coming <laughs> after you. Don't worry. <laughs> but I think really at the end of the day, what happened was it's, you know, and I've seen this trend in the stem cell field as it's developed. So remember, the technology we have, the reagents we have, everything that we do in science is so much more robust. It's so much more intricate. We have so many different ways to do, say, one thing. Think about the number of medias are out there, right, to grow the same type of cell. So really, at the end of the day, if you ask me my own opinion on this, I think what happened with cryopreserving cells is that people went back and said, you know, maybe we shouldn't just accept this dogma that you can't do it. Kind of like that dogma that used to exist that said there weren't any cells in the brain that could turn over and rejuvenate, right? That used to be a thing. Not that long ago, actually, people forget. Do we actually have proof of that in human brains now? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. the Karolinska. They, yeah. uh, since the nuclear fallout. That's yeah, great. Jonas Frissens. Yes, nuclear, that's right. He has gotten a slew of science and nature papers out of that, which is fantastic. So, which is really interesting work. I suggest anyone check that out. But really, at the end of the day, it was playing, I think, with these slow rates, very controlled uh, freezers that you have very high control over, and then development of new cryopreservative medias and being willing to actually go in and tinker with that. And I do think the fact that there is this resurgence of, remember, there has to be a market for something, right? You either create a market for it or there's a small market out there and you get more competition. And as cell therapies were becoming more and more a thing of the next five, 10 year reality, and now as we know are a reality, companies understood that and understood that there was an unmet need there, right? There was a gap, an actual reagent gap there where, and now you're seeing DMSO-free cryoprotectants, which I think is quite exciting. So one is very simple, technology caught up and people said, why not? Okay. So that those two things are important. It's nothing, you know, I don't know all the details behind, you can read our paper. We actually, CDI gave them a lot of credit. They disclosed a lot of information at the, basically a reviewer request that 
we weren't quite sure they were going to be willing to do. And they went out there because they basically took a stand and they said, you know what? This needs to be out there. We want this published. We want people to understand this is possible and this is what's happening. And then, of course, the Studer Group in, in Sloan Kettering has had success as well. They've got their their cells ready to go that Mark Mark probably touched on that he was integral in, in developing those protocols. So I don't need to necessarily know all those specifics. But again, it's really technology and somebody saying, let's try this and putting a, a good scientific mind to it. So that's the technical part, I think. And most of it's technical. And then, you know, you have to have people buy in. So for instance, I'll use this as an example. When I started working with CDI, they were a tools company only. And we sort of challenged each other when I said, I'll, I'll do the in vivo work. And they said, well, we'll, you know, we'll work with you with the cells. And after we had proof of concept and then we had functional improvement and then Fujifilm bought them. And I think one of the reasons Fujifilm became interested in them is because they saw this therapeutic ends and this, this means to get into that space. So there's one aspect. And now CDI, which is a Fujifilm company, now has a tools division and a therapeutics division where they're actually going after multiple diseases, not just neurodegenerative diseases. And then you look at the academic side with Studer's group and the Sloan Kettering group from proving a concept in Sonia Crix's original paper in Nature and this paradigm shift in how we do this now to Blue Rock Therapeutics being formed and being the company that they just started with having a dopamine neuron transplantation program and then as well as a cardiac program, which is guided by Gordon Keller's work. So you have these juggernauts and these change makers, these thinkers that are also doers in the field that are doing it right, that are meticulous. And you have industry buying in and saying, you know what, this is big deal. And I don't remember what the exact number on Blue Rock was, but I think they set some sort of record for a first round of funding or something like that. They so. destroyed it. They hundreds of millions. Hundreds this of millions. Is, this is, I guess, you could weigh in on this because it seems like it's culminating, right? Everybody, it's been academic. People have been talking about it in theory, and now all of a sudden it's practice. And we're trying to figure out how are we going to get this into massive scale? And the freezing is the key, right? Is to have a product that you can vet and then you could put it on the shelf and then you could thaw it and it's all regulatory approved. It can go in an emergent situation. Where do you come in on this? Do you think that ultimately it's going to be this haplotype model where we have a bank of cells that run the gamut of haplotypes and are amenable to transplant into almost any human? In, on Earth, or do you think we're going to be moving into a more personalized IPS type? Every patient gets their own cell bank. Yeah, well, that's the million dollar question, right? Literally, actually, a hundred million dollar question. One end we have so the Sloan Kettering group is using embryonic stem cells. They're going to start with an immunosuppression, which is I am a big supporter of, no matter if you're doing autologous IPS cells, I suggest I would tell you to do that personally. And then you have the other end of the spectrum, right? The fully autologous, patient-derived cells, personalized medicine, all the keywords. And you have the middle ground, which is the iPS cells with the haplomatching. So there was actually a paper from the dopamine field from Japan. It's actually Jun Takahashi's group. You may say, Takahashi, Japan, why does that sound familiar? Well, there's a very successful ophthalmic program run by Masayo Takahashi out there. So they have very strong programs. But anyways, June did this very nice, elegant study where he literally did uh, the haplomatching perfect non-human primate experiment where he did a complete autologous, so a complete uh, match to yourself. He then did varying degrees of haplomatching. So in other words, number of alleles that you would have similar. 
again, from an autologous being a complete match to a complete incomplete match. And they showed this varying level of immunologic uh, response. Now, the interesting thing is that in the autologous scenario, right, this ideal scenario that we all say, oh, you won't need to immunosuppress, there's still an immune response. So I think people need to understand that you're growing cells in a dish. You are artificially creating something and then you're transplanting it back into someone. I don't care if it comes from them or not. First of all, in Parkinson's, you're creating a stab wound into the brain. I mean, that sounds awful, but that's what we call it experimentally when we do it. You're dropping a needle into the brain, which, by the way, is nothing to be worried about. Deep brain stimulation <laughs> happens all the time with a much larger device. So don't let that, people shouldn't be scared about that. Neuros I'm scared. <laughs> neurosurgeons are very good at their jobs. But I think, you know, what you need to understand is I don't think there's a right answer, but I think what you really have to ask at the end of the day is what makes sense as far as what can we make in a reasonable amount of time? What can we set to market? Because remember, the only people that are really going to be able to bring a therapeutic in the right, done the correct way to a large number of people, you need to get commercial support behind this, right? You really, I can't imagine doing this in an academic setting. And I do think people think it's black and white in that direction. But I think if you look at, I don't care if it's cell therapy or big pharma or drug therapy, everyone's working. There's always a combination between academia and biotech or big pharma these days, Absolutely. right? I mean, they need Absolutely. each other. Absolutely. We need each I other. Wonder. I'm not trying to put you in a corner or anything, but I guess the idea then is that it kind of has to be scalable. It has to be like cryo, right? Can you envision a world where everybody gets their own personal cell bank frozen down just in case, like insurance? I feel like the practical commercial model, which as you kind of allude to, is the only way it's going to come into play, at least in the short term, near term, is that it has to be something that you can scale and freeze and take off the shelf. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that right now, although there are plenty of examples that, well, not plenty, there's several examples out there right now of other cell-based therapeutics that are not frozen, okay? That's a good so, point. But I the, think- uh, The CAR T therapies you're yes. alluding to, like, yes, you're absolutely right. That's a great point, Dustin. But I do think one thing you need to understand is, that, again, it's technicality. I think the, what makes sense is exactly what was Lorenz and Vivian and Mark at the Sloan Catering are doing. It's iterations, right? Here's version 1.0. And then I think the next version will be, you know, as soon as they have enough of these haplomatch cell lines and they can show, again, you still need to show that those are functionally relevant and are equivalent to what, let's say, let's just use Lorenz as an example, to what the Studer group is using. And then the next iteration, obviously, is like patient matching, right? Which the Japanese with the eye study obviously came off of that because they did some long-term budgeting and financial considerations there and realized that, that just wasn't sustainable at this moment in history. So the short answer to your question is, do I think that's feasible today, right now, personalized medicine, IPS, for more than a couple people just to show proof of concept? Absolutely not. However, if you had told me 15 years ago that I could take any cell of the body, add a transcription factor or two, and make anything else in your body, I would have told you you were absolutely nuts. I would have been very wrong. Wouldn't that's it be the first too. time I've been wrong about anything, and it won't be the last. So you're not wrong. This isn't the last time. What are you working on? What are people going to be? I mean, you've got these dopaminergic neurons that are reversing deficits that are getting bringing functionality back to animal models. I mean, are you moving forward? I mean, where is this going? I can answer that, and I guess in two ways. One is that those programs are still very strong. I know CDIs continue to work on their program, and is very excited about their therapeutic program. I actually saw Mark Tomashima 
last weekend at a meeting and it sounds like everything's going very well and it sounds like the Blue Rock venture is is taking off and everybody seems to be doing quite well there. I also know some other people that company. As with all science, there's a lot of interplay between personnel. And then for me personally, you know, I've sort of transitioned. I left my academic position in Chicago maybe about just over a year, year and a half ago, and I now work for a company called RexGen. So we're a translational sciences company, and we specialize in clinically relevant disease modeling in non-human primates. At the end of the day, this, your drug or your device or your cell, I don't care what it is, it has to be safe, right? If it's not safe, you're not getting into the clinic in phase one. But unfortunately, as you guys are well aware, 80-90% of clinical trials fail at phase two, phase three, because while they're safe, and again, they better be safe, they don't actually work in a human being in, in the actual condition. And so we kind of try and de-risk that, and we actually offer extremely relevant disease models in the larger animal, right, in the non-human primate. So one of the things, and again, I've mentioned we've continued, it was very rewarding to be able to sort of continue that work with CDI that was, you know, sort of my baby at the beginning and see that out. I'm not sure what their current plans are is, you know, where they're at. I know the other group and slow Kettering is, I think they're, you know, pretty much ready to go. They're finishing up their last preclinical studies for the FDA. But something that I've transitioned to and I'm very excited about and really take a lot of joy and pride in, in my work is that not only are we creating new models, so for instance, I'm actually working right now on developing a stroke model, which is a huge unmet need, as well as an Alzheimer's model, which as you all know, is a massive unmet need. The ticking time bomb for so much of the population potentially, yeah. Yeah, and we've got some really, really exciting programs going that we're, you know, we're not quite ready to, to launch publicly as far as, you know, offering them, but they're quite far along and they look great. Then beyond the CNS, which is where all my work has been to date, I love now, we do a whole ton of ophthalmic disease modeling. So you think about all the retinal transplantation work that's been going on for AMD. The eye is great if you come from the CNS world because, you know, and, and I do a transplant now, I have to wait 12 months to find out whether my cells survived and did anything. Whereas in, an, in the retinal world, in the ophthalmic world, if for, let's, let's call it safer cell transplantation for this particular audience. You can transplant those cells and you can do in-life imaging along the way to see if those cells are there. You can look at cortical thickness. There's all kinds of really great diagnostics. And one of the things that was really great at RexGen is our ophthalmic suite would make some ophthalmologists in, you know, in the Western world in the United States jealous. We can do every, pretty much every diagnostic you can imagine that you would want to get, but all in under one roof at one time. So it's really rewarding to be able to see different programs large, small, you name it, different biologics, small molecules, devices, and really see these therapies that have already been vetted through the small animal world come to fruition and then be able to take a part in that. It's really exciting. I get to work with all kinds of different disease models. I get to work with totally different organ systems. And so it's been quite rewarding. So it's a little bit of a change of pace for me, although I still keep up on all of my cell transplantation, Parkinson's literature and That'll always still have a special spot in my heart. Absolutely. I mean, you're playing a role in the development of therapies for all sorts of disorders that are potentially, the payback is going to be huge eventually. I know this. You're making a difference. That's right. 
I mean, I know you're doing a lot more things in developing these models, but it seems like you're playing into the development of a lot of different parallel therapies. You're hitting the fundamental issues. So I guess that's the key. We need technologists like you to push it forward, Dustin. Nice work. And get them into those later phase trials. Seriously, bro. Fix my brain. I can feel it degenerating right now. As we speak, I'm degenerating. (laughs) Well, you seem to be doing a pretty darn good job. Uh, It's slow, but it's going to be ugly. I got to be honest. Yeah. And what do you think? Five, 10 years before we are absolutely. (laughs) Oh, no. She's putting you on the hook. Give me a number, Dustin. I'm taking the over on that, okay? I'm going on the over. Good for you. Good for you. I'm optimistic. You're right. Correct. I got you. I got you at least 110 years old before you start feeling any decline. Oh, You're gonna God. Be Thanks for that. All right, Dustin. Thanks for talking to us, man. That was fun. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. You guys have a great podcast. Long-time listener. So thanks. It's quite an honor. Keep on going. Wonderful. You're building the hits for us, brother. <laughs> Thanks again. All right, Kiki, that was, I thought, a great follow-up to our previous show with Mark Tomashima. He was talking about how you freeze the stem cells, and now we're talking about how we can freeze the actual cells of interest while preserving their function in an in vivo model. So, I mean, it seems like every show we're moving closer to the clinic. I feel like just a couple more shows will have most things solved. Let's keep it rolling. <laughs> right. And, and like you said much earlier in the show, it was just fabulous to have these two interviews back to back so that Mark Tomashima and Dustin, we can really see the progression of this research mm. from the basic side to the application side and starting to get in there yeah so anyway it is time now for us to close the show yes we are getting to the end but it's time before we come to a complete stop that we do our good old stem cell podcast rant and this rant is our chance to complain about something that bothers us and most likely bothers you and so dalen what is our topic to rant about today you know there's a lot of stuff going on in the world There's a lot to be worried about, but there's a lot of people out there I think are just like addicted to the panic or the hysteria. And my problem is with these people. It's like, it used to be, I remember like the whole, what was that movie? Um, The Big Short came out and my my brother's in finance. He's telling me how all his friends are buying guns because it's inevitable that the the lower class are going to rise up and the French Revolution, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, nowadays you look at the news and people are bugging out about how it's like apocalypse surrounding the eclipses. And it's not because like, oh, the stars are going to align and the world's going to explode like Fifth Element style. This is just like because there's an eclipse, there's going to be a run on the banks. I don't understand it. Kiki, people are so ridiculous about the survivalism. Yeah, here in Oregon, uh, we are, you know, right south of me and to the east is is a great spot to watch the totality of this solar eclipse. And there are thousands of people. And the news here in Oregon says, million people are coming to Oregon. The state is going to be overrun. There's going to be backup on the freeways. You're going to be stuck in your car. You're good. And the truth is, I mean, who knows? There's this one little town out east called Madras. There's tens of thousands of people who are going to Madras to be looking at the eclipse. There are a couple of festivals happening. There's going to be a bunch of hippies, a bunch of ravers, and then there's going to be a bunch of scientists and eclipse chasers. And they're all going to be there in this town of a couple thousand 
and it's going to be suddenly overnight 60 to 70 to 100,000 people in this town. And so everybody's a little concerned. There's not going to be any cell service. You need to buy your emergency provisions for a week. Make sure you've got water and canned food. And a lot of people I know are just choosing to stay home. And Kiki, to miss what I'm hearing the here, eclipse I was, entirely. I wanted to rant and talk about how I was bad, and now I'm listening to you. You're a survivalist. You have <laughs> probably like a big <laughs> cistern of water in your house as we speak, don't you? I have my earthquake <laughs> protection kit. I mean, I live in the Pacific Northwest. I've got my water. I've got You've a got little, your, your I got a go, go bag. bag. I do. I have a go bag with a little yes. flashlight and tape. And, and you food. also have a cellar with six tons worth of canned no, food. No. I mean, Kiki, that's my sister-in-law. Sure. There's a, there's a lot of people going to watch a, an eclipse, but it's going to be Kumbaya. It's not going to be Mad Max. I mean, all you people need to chill out over there. I Seriously. Know. Everybody's really concerned and scared about what's going to happen. It's going to be the end of Oregon with the eclipse. I don't know. And then, oh, and then there are all the articles about make sure you have the right solar eclipse glasses because you don't want solar eclipse glasses that'll damage your eyes. And so there are all these articles coming out about certification for the glasses and making sure you have the right certification, which is great, you know, but you can also use things like welding masks and welding goggles to look at the sun. That's fine also. But there are things... People are taking advantage of this fear and yeah, also the enthusiasm. It's, it's a, a money, money grab. grab. So the campsites are going by for like hundreds of dollars. You know, it's like $300 to put a tent up in somebody's parking space. I'm going to watch it on YouTube. Yeah, you probably can. And then there's also the people who are selling fake solar eclipse glasses. I actually saw an <laughs> ad for those old school 3D glasses with the red and the blue lenses. Jeez. Being or sold, some poor kid being out there sold is solar eclipse glasses. Out. I'm like, oh my gosh. So there's panic, there's idiocy, and there's greed, money grabbing. It's not good. Oh, there's so much. Can't it's we just good. go enjoy the moon blocking the sun for a few minutes? Seriously, why is it gotta be a big deal? Are you gonna go? Are you gonna go after all that? Are you, I am. Are you scared? No, okay, I have a, I have a weekend plan. I'm leaving town. I'm going to go camp with a bunch of people. And hopefully there will be a clear sky and a beautiful view of the eclipse. And the totality is only an hour south of me, hour and a half south. So I hope that I will get to see. I'm looking forward to being able to take those eclipse glasses off during totality for that mm. two minutes or so. And being hope, hopefully being able to see the tendrils and the uh, the solar prominences coming off around the edge. Bring a gun is all I'm saying. I will bring not. A, bring a rifle. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I might bring a go bag of extra food in case I'm stuck on the freeway for an extended period of time. Bring a pistol. Is all I'm saying. I'm going right. to bring water because water's good. <laughs> bring a lot of it. Get a flat and I'll truck. bring I'll bring lollipops and hugs and rainbows. <laughs> yeah, and you'll be the first one shot. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Dalen. Thanks a lot. You know what? I'm going to rant about your pessimism here. Wouldn't be the first time. I know. Everyone, send us your rant ideas on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email info at stemcellpodcast.com. All right, Dalen, that concludes episode 98 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Be sure, everyone, to tune in for our next episode. That is, if there's still the internet, 
after this thing happens with the eclipse. God only knows if they'll still have the end of the world. society. <laughs> but then in that case, who cares about stem cells, right? We're just trying to get, you know, We're just some water. By. That's right. Go get some water. Survive. Survive. All right. Goodbye, y'all. Thank you.